Well, it's great to have you here on this Memorial Day weekend here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit joining us, uh, we're glad to have you here as well as those online in our live stream and those in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God uh, as we not only remember uh, what people have done for us in the past to allow us this opportunity to gather here and to worship freely, but also when you think about it, the greatest sacrifice of all of what Jesus Christ has done for us that gives us a living hope. We're continuing on in this series, Hope Beyond. Um, a couple of months ago, there was an article that came across the wire on the Associated Press, and it, I'll read a portion of it. It says, Vietnamese authorities have ordered monks at a popular Buddhist pagoda to stop bad karma eviction ceremonies. Three times a month, they hold a two-day ceremony and remove bad karma, demanding donations. The amounts demanded by the monks soared to the point where they began taking payments by bank transfers and by installments. So you can finance this, apparently. Tens of thousands of worshipers have been paying the 18th century Bavang Pagoda up to $13,500 to have their bad karma vanquished. The Committee for Religious Affairs, the government body, issued a statement on its website saying it has a negative impact on social order. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of karma, which by the way, I don't buy into. Before we go any further, some of you are thinking, wow, Pornwall is really open-minded. I do not buy into the whole concept of karma. I do believe that we, we reap what we sow and there's, there's consequences. But karma, the concept is that it's a, in a form of justice on a cosmic level that if you experience bad things in your life right now, it's because you deserve it because you did something in your last life that you're now paying for. And if you're really going through a rough time right now, you must have had a real bender last time around around. And how you live this time will determine next time. So when it says it's kind of bad for the social order, no, no, it's bad for the cosmic order if you buy into this, because karma is about cause and effect. But this group of Buddhists have taken it from cause and effect to cash and evict. And I started thinking it might be a good idea for me to set up a little booth down there, because these people are obviously very willing to pay. And I'm going to set up a thing where it's kind of a, a prepaid party punch card. Uh, so they pay me $13,500. I give a punch card, they can party like a rock star, and then next time around, if they come back in another life and they really, really suffer, I'll give them their money back. But until then, we'll just kind of, it'll all be good. The interesting thing is, it's talking about all of these people who are putting their hope in paying some money to have some monks guarantee that bad things are taken away from their life, that bad things will stay away from their life. And if you put all your hope in that, what happens? What if there are bad things? The hope we're talking about goes beyond that. The hope we're talking about, what Jesus offers, is not what if bad things happen. The hope is solid even if bad things happen, there's a hope. And especially if bad things happen, there's a rock solid hope that we can build our life on, that we can, we can uh, build on the foundation of this hope, as the writer of Hebrews says, as an anchor for our souls. Not just because of bad things that we've brought on ourselves, but even in and especially when there are things that we don't deserve, things that are unfair, injustice in our life and in this world. Now, the, the foundational verse that many of you have, uh, I, well, I don't know, I can't say that. Some of you have memorized out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we come back to it every week. It says, praise be to the Lord and God, uh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth 
into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth into this living hope, this daily alive hope, comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection only happens because of an injustice that happens. What we need to understand is that the greatest hope that we can have, the living hope that we have been promised, this hope that will, will, will see us through anything, is the result of the most horrific injustice ever experienced by anyone in, the, in human history, of what Christ experienced on the cross. And out of that injustice comes this hope as an anchor for our soul. This hope that we can hold on to even in and especially in injustice. Paul writes a letter to a group of people in Ephesus. Uh, the letter in the New Testament is referred to the book of Ephesians, which little side note, Three weeks from today, on Father's Day weekend, we're starting our summer series for 12 or 13 weeks, starting on Father's Day, going through um, Labor Day. We're gonna be walking through the letter to the Ephesians. I'm very excited about this series this summer as we just study for 12 or 13 weeks this letter of Ephesians. I hope you'll be a part of that. Part of that. In this letter, Paul writes to these people, and he doesn't just say, hey, I've been praying for you. He spells out specifically how he's been praying, and he does it twice. And in the first one, which we'll look at in six weeks, in this, when he's talking about how he prays for them, this is what he says. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That, that there is this hope that we have, this hope that is offered, this hope that has been given, this hope that we have been called to live in. And he says, I pray that you discover this. I pray that you know this. I pray that you build your life on this. I pray that this is the hope that holds you through. Because for the last 2,000 years, the followers after Christ have been and should always be the most hope-filled people on the face of the planet. That if we have a bucket that's considered our hope bucket, as followers of Christ, what we find is our hope bucket ought to constantly be overflowing. There might be things that try to steal our hope, but we have a hope that is constant. It's a living hope that's alive every day and our hope bucket can be overflowing and Paul just prays that they would discover this hope and their hope bucket would just be spilling over even in and especially in injustice in their life. Well, this series we've been basing uh, loosely on the book of 1 Peter. That's a letter that Peter wrote uh, to some, some people. And the whole letter is about hope and about having this hope. And you would think, well, it's such a hopeful letter, man. Things have been going great for these people up and to the right. I mean, if it's such a, a hopeful thing. And what we find is really quite the opposite that they are going through some very difficult times, that they are experiencing some injustice. They're experiencing some hardships. They're experiencing some suffering and some persecution, and it's not something they've brought on themselves. They're experiencing this because someone else has brought them, this on themselves. So much so that, that Paul writes in 1 Peter, which again, we're gonna be in 1 Peter today, chapter two, if you wanna turn there in your Bible or your tablet or phone. Chapter two, verse 19, he says this, for it is commendable, like it's praiseworthy. This is an admirable thing. It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Now, none of us like pain, and none of us like the pain of suffering. But if we kind of brought it on ourselves, even though we don't like it, we might get it. It's like, yeah, I, I know, I did this, and I, I kind of deserve this. But to add insult to injury, it's when we're under this pain of suffering that is unjust, that's not fair, that, that we don't deserve, we didn't, that someone else, whatever decision, whoever it might have been, has brought us on this, and this isn't something that we deserve. 
And he says, it is praiseworthy, it's commendable to bear up underneath that. Now what he's not saying is that this is a fatalist approach to, to life. You know, it's just bummer for you, play the hand that was dealt, you got a bad hand, you're gonna have to deal with it. It wasn't this defeatist attitude. We're gonna see there's a whole lot more to it. But he puts a qualifier on this that for me at first glance, I'm like, I, I don't even know what that means. He says this, you know, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. And I, and I, I'm, I read that and I'm thinking, I don't even see how that all ties together. I, I don't get that. But this, this conscious of God. Now, we've done this in the past, we're doing it again today. In a, a little while, we're gonna have a one question quiz. And the answer to the quiz is conscious of God. Because after a while, I'm gonna make a statement in a half hour or so, if you're lucky. <laughs> I'm gonna make a statement, something along this line. You remember when we started earlier today, we read where Peter said, you know, it is commendable if a man bears up under the suffering, uh, uh, under the pain of unjust suffering, because of what? Good, good, Scratch, did you get that? Okay, that's it, conscious of God. That's the answer to the quiz. Now what I find interesting is sometimes, even if we may not admit it, when we go through the pain of unjust suffering, sometimes we start accusing God. We start getting angry at God. We start blaming God. We start questioning God. We start cursing God. We start walking away from God. God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? God, it's all your fault. And so how does this work out? Well, in this letter that Peter writes to these people, he knows because they've undergone and are undergoing this kind of unjust suffering that it would be a possibility that they could start blaming God, getting angry at God, walking away from their faith, saying, I don't wanna do this anymore. If that's the kind of God you are, they could do all of that. And so he writes them this letter. Now, I'm gonna ask that you give me a little bit of grace because I wanna tell you about the reality that they live in. This, the people that are receiving this letter. I shared a portion of this three months ago in February. I know you remember it well. And, and uh, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Kip and Pastor Brian spoke, they may have referenced it a little bit. But I want to tell you about their circumstance, the reality that they live in. On July 18th, the year was 64, AD 64, there started what is referred to as the Great Fire of Rome. Nero was the emperor, and there was this fire that raged throughout Rome. It burned constantly for seven days, six nights, and it was, it was suspected that Nero was responsible for this. It was suspected that at times when, when people would go to extinguish the fire, Nero would hinder them from doing that. And when, at times when the fire went out, that Nero would send thugs out to reignite the fire. Because it appears that Nero had a passion for building. And when he looked at Rome, there were some things that were embarrassing, some parts of the city that were old, streets that were narrow, things where he just thought, man, it'd be nice to rebuild this. And he had this idea that if it was all wiped out, he could rebuild it with broad, wide boulevards and nice, shiny new buildings. In fact, there was even this, this idea that he might rename the city from Rome to Neropolis, like the city of Nero, which would have changed everything. When in Neropolis, do as the Neuropolis. You know, Neuropolis wasn't built in a day. So this is his design, this is his plan. Some of you may remember in the Jungle Book, King Louis sings this song. And there's a line, he's, a couple lines, he says, what I desire is man's red fire to make my dreams come true. 
Give me the power of man's red flower so I can be like you. I love that movie. Well, it is reported that while Rome is burning out of control day after day after day, that Nero, and, and there's the, the, the urban legend is that he was up playing his fiddle, but that he watched from a tower, and it is quoted that he delighted in, and here's the quote, in the flower and the loveliness of the flames. Give me the power of this beautiful flower. Make my dreams come true. And at the end of it all, 70% of Rome had been destroyed by fire. You can imagine what it did to the city. Think about what this does to us, what, how this affects us. One of the things that was destroyed was an 800-year-old temple to Jupiter. There is art and architecture of antiquity that we will never hear about, never see, never experience because Nero burned it. I mean, you think about the outrage and, and the, 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 the trauma when, when we heard about Notre Dame being on fire just a few weeks ago. Now there's a great masses of Roman history that we will never experience because it was all burned up. In addition to that, half, half of the population of Rome lost their homes and their businesses. They were now homeless, they were without any form of income, and they were outraged because it was widely understood that Nero was the one that was responsible not only for starting it, but hindering the extinguishing of it and reigniting it, and they have lost everything because of him. At the time all of this is happening, there's a young boy. His name is Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He grows up later and he becomes a senator of Rome and he also becomes a Roman historian. He's not a Christ follower, he just writes history. And in his annals, he writes these words. The sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. And so, in the hope of dissipating the rumor, he, Nero, falsely diverted the charge onto a set of people to whom the vulgar, and the vulgar are the, the common, unsophisticated masses of people. That's what he means when it says vulgar. A, a set of people to whom the vulgar gave the name of Christians. The founder of the sect, of this group of people, one Christus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. So what Nero does is say, realizing that his kingdom is outraged at him, he says, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was this, this group of these, what do they call them, Christians, and that, that Christus guy who started that was killed. They're the ones who did it. And not only does he blame them, but he begins to kill them. Some of you have heard about how, how the Christians were thrown to the lions in the gladiatorial games. This is where this started. But it wasn't just that. Tacitus also writes in his annals, the mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of, could you go back please? They were covered with the skins of beasts and, and they were torn by dogs and perished. He would not just have them executed, he would put animal skins around them, tie them in there and then let them go so that these wild dogs thought these were animals they were devouring and they would be torn limb from limb. Not only that, but they were nailed to crosses. The crucifixion was very common for them. Or were doomed to the flames and burned. Nero would wrap Christians in pitch while they were alive and set them on fire to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people. This is the reality of what's going on. And in addition to all of that, he makes it illegal, unlawful, to be a follower after Christ, to be one of these Christians. 
that it was against the law. You know, this happened in Rome, but it began to spread. It wasn't just in Rome, it was all across the empire. Uh, a man named Moffat, a, a, commentary, a commentator named Moffat, writes these things. He said, after the neuronic wave, what happens in Rome? The neuronic wave had passed over the capital. The wash of it was felt on the far shores of the provinces over the entire empire. Now, all across the Roman empire, it was illegal to be a Christian, and it was met with persecution. These followers of Christ knew what had been done, knew what was being done, knew what could and would happen to them if they were found out that they were followers of Christ, that they would be persecuted unjustly. In addition to that, that's enough, but in addition to that, there were these slanderous rumors that were started about this group called Christians. Because the Christians would meet in these, in these gatherings, what they would refer to as the agape feast, this, this time where they would come together and eat together. And they, as a family, would refer to one another as brother and sister. And as we read in scripture, they would often greet one another with a holy kiss. And then they would take communion and remember the flesh and the blood of Christ that had been spilt and, and broken for them. And all of these facts were twisted around to make this horrible, slanderous rumor against these people. And this is what was spread, the rumor about them, is that they meet in these clandestine meetings called these love feasts, where they have these cannibalistic things where they eat flesh and they drink blood, and then they have these, these weird incestuous relationships with their brothers and sisters, and what was spread was that they come together as cannibals with incestuous orgies. That's the rumor that was spread about them. It's no wonder that Peter writes in, in chapter two, verse 11, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they accuse you of being a cannibal, they accuse you of orgies. They accuse you of incestuous relationships. Even though they accuse you of these things, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And in addition to that, many of the followers of Jesus were slaves who had heard the good news of the gospel and they received it. And they have, many of them have owners who are cruel and ruthless and mean. So now you have these people who are following Jesus, who have almost any right at all to say, God, why would you do this to us? You have these followers of Jesus and they've been, had slanderous rumors spread about them. They are in danger. They've lost friends, family, brothers and sisters to, to Nero and to the whole persecution. They know that they might experience that. And in addition to that, they're having to deal with their slave owners that treat them poorly. And with all of that, Peter comes along and says, you ought to be the most hopeful people on the planet. Your hope bucket ought to be overflowing because you've been given new birth into a living hope. And as we've seen all through this series, it's not about hoping for, but in. It's not about what they hoped for, but who they hoped in. Because the reality for them is this that they might never get what they hoped for, but they could never lose who their hope was in. They might never get the, the relief from this persecution. They might never get the truth told about them. That, that might never happen. What they hoped for might never happen. But who they hoped in, they could never lose. And he says, because of that, your hope bucket can be overflowing and you can have hope even in and especially in 
injustice. And so he writes this letter to them. That's a long introduction to my sermon. <laughs> you ready to go? Yep. All right. Man, that's half the sermon. Who knows how long this is gonna go. First Peter. Chapter two, let's go back to verse 19 again. It says this, for it's commendable, it's praiseworthy if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Can I just say, it, it, I get this. I mean, when I hear about people that endure unbelievable things, it's inspiring to me. It's incredible. I don't know if you ever read uh, Unbroken, the Louis Zamperini story or, or saw the movie. I, I remember a book that I read in high school called Tortured for His Faith. These people that, in prisoner of war camps, people that endured hardships. I mean, you read that and you're like, how in the world could they make it through on the, and it's just, it's just inspiring. It is praiseworthy. It is commendable when someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. By the way, this is going to come up on a quiz here in a few minutes. So just kind of keep that in mind. And then it goes on and says, but if you suffer for doing good, this is like even worse. I mean, at first, this unjust suffering, I don't deserve it. Now, I've actually done good things and I'm suffering before. I mean, it just gets worse. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. What Peter is saying is, listen, when you endure, you're gonna inspire your brothers. You're gonna encourage them. You're gonna strengthen them. But when you live this way, this is commendable on a different level before God. This is praiseworthy, living praiseworthy before God. Sensing God's smile, sensing this, this assurance that that's my daughter, that's my son. You're holding on to the hope, you're holding on to my strength, you're holding on to my hand, and you're enduring the hardships, even though you don't deserve them. It's injustice. Even though you've done good and you're suffering for it, even though they're slandering you, even though they're persecuting you, even though you may lose your life, to sense the smile of God on your life. It's commendable before God. And Peter says, listen, this is what we were called to. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. This is the life we're called to live, a life that is honoring to God, a life that is pleasing to God, a life that even when the world throws its worst, that we continue on, that we're steadfast. And he says, and, and let me remind you that Christ suffered. They, they said slanderous things about Jesus. He experienced injustice. He, he suffered. He was persecuted. He was killed. Oh, and by the way, he went through all that for you. Not just because it's an evil world. He did this for you. That the hope that you have is a result of the injustice that Jesus suffered on your behalf. That because he went through that, the redemption and the salvation you have is because of what Christ brought on himself. Listen, I'm just telling you, when that, when that really grips you, when we come together to worship, to pour out our hearts and to praise God, you begin to understand, it's what he did for me. It's an amazing thing. And it's not just, not just that he did it for us. I mean, that, again, that's enough. Because there's a secondary thing as well. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That you should follow the example of Christ. Listen, I pray that we never experience the kind of persecution and suffering that these people experience. By the way, three weeks ago, I think, the BBC put out an article about religious persecution in our world today. 
and they made a statement that one out of three people on the planet experience religious persecution. And then they found that the group that is most persecuted on our planet today are Christians. We have this freedom to come here to worship openly. But we have brothers and sisters across the planet today who are experiencing incredible persecution. And to pray for them, to lift them up, to be aware. Don't ever take this for granted. And I pray that we get to continue to worship this way. And I pray that we never experience what the audience that Peter was writing to was, what they were experiencing. But he says, this, this, is, this letter is it, so practical that, that we, should, we should follow in the example of Christ. I don't know, any of you, remember back to the 90s, any of you have a, a bracelet, a keychain, a hat, a shirt, a sweatshirt, a sticker, a poster that said WWJD, anyone at all? Some of you, the rest of you were out in Linden or something, I don't know, <laughs> sorry. In the 90s, this WWJD kind of became this, you know, fad or whatever. What would Jesus do? And it kind of took on cultural whatever. What's interesting is that didn't just happen in the 1990s. It actually was kind of a big thing in the 90s, 100 years earlier. In 1891, on, on July 28th, 1891, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon and in that sermon, twice in his manuscript, in quotations, he wrote these words, what would Jesus do? 100 years before you ever had your bracelet. What would Jesus do? Five years later, there's a man named Charles Sheldon who wrote a book using these three words as the title of the book. I read this when I was in high school. It was referred to as, in, the title was In His Steps. Well, it became one of the best-selling books in, in, uh, in, in literary history. Over 50 million copies sold. But the subtitle to this book, and it was a, a novel that he wrote based on some talks that he gave about people who would ask this question and live, in this situation, what would Jesus do? And they just lived that way. And 2,000 years ago, Peter is writing to these people who are going through unbelievable hardships and he says, here's how you have your hope is that you follow the example of Jesus and you walk in his footsteps and you ask yourselves, how can I be more like Christ? Because Jesus, he is not only our hope, Jesus is our hope and our example that we would be more like him, that we would follow him in all of life. That, that's your blank, by the way. He's our hope and our example. And in this, that we would ask ourselves, okay, how would Jesus operate now? I want to be more like Christ. Maybe you've heard the Latin term imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin term that means the image of God. Every single one of us are created in the imago Dei. Whether you believe in Christ or not, whether you're religious or not, you are created, you are stamped with the image of God. In Judaism, they had a, a phrase that they used that was referred to as imitatio Dei the imitation of God, and it was what they based their ethics and their, their, their standard of living on. In 1421 or so, there was a, a man named Thomas Akempis. I always think that he's the, the, the patron saint of root beer, but that's Thomas Kemper. Thomas Akempis. Thomas Akempis had this devotional set of writings that was referred to as imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ to follow the example of Jesus. So 
Hundreds of years before we had the t-shirts, followers of Christ were saying, listen, this is our example. Now, right now, some of you are in your mind, you're saying, okay, yeah, but you, but you don't know. You have no idea. And you're right, I don't. And we could have you up here telling your sob story about your ex and your boss and that partner that wronged you and how the government has messed you over and all your opponents and business partners. You, you could tell us these stories and go, oh yes, you're so justified in, in being filled with bitterness and anger and rage and malice and, and slander and, and revenge. Oh yes, and, and, and I think Peter would say, okay, you done yet? Because I'm in the middle of a letter here. All right, good enough. Now listen, and then Peter quotes Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a chapter that talks about Jesus, our suffering Savior. And he quotes Isaiah 53 and says, he committed no sin, which by the way, puts Jesus in a category of one. No one else is in this category. You sure aren't. <laughs> and I'm not even close. I haven't been in this category since before I was born. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So now anything that happens to this guy is injustice at the highest level that we can never experience. And then it goes on. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. If you ever think that scripture isn't relevant to your life, man, you just haven't read it. Try living this one out. Because our whole lives, We've been doing this. We've been retaliating from our earliest years. I know you are, but what am I? I learned it by watching you. Takes one to know one. I'm rubber, you're glue, bounce off me and six on you. You know, it's not just kids who do this. Our national leaders were doing this this week in the press. Our world leaders do this. You remember when Kim Jong-un called uh, Trump a, a dotard? I didn't even know what that word was. <laughs> Takes one to know what. And Peter's saying, listen, you, you're aliens and strangers in this world. You don't follow after the example of children in this way. You don't follow after the example of world leaders and national leaders. You follow the example of Jesus. It's the imitatio Christi. You, you are imitating Christ. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Could you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and looking down at the Roman guard saying, you just wait till Easter morning, brother. <laughs> I mean, I may be a little tied up now, but you, when you least expect it, you, hey, I'm telling dad. <laughs> he says, Father, forgive them. And what we see this as we follow Christ, as we imitate Christ, in the hardships of life, in the wrongs of life, in the injustice of life, is that we choose to respond, not to react. That we don't just do this knee-jerk reaction, just kind of this impulsive, reflexive thing, because usually it causes us to look like a knee-jerk. Not to do that, but to respond. And some of you are saying, ooh, yeah, this is good advice. Good advice, I need to slow down, think this one through, plan it out a little bit more, recruit a few more people, orchestrate it. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Respond has an asterisk. I mean, respond in a God-honoring, Christ-like manner. Some of you need this, okay? He's going, yeah, I should slow down. I should just really put the, no, 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 no. It's becoming more like Christ. Okay, okay, Here, here's a little quiz for you. Earlier, we saw where Peter wrote these words. 
He says it's commendable, it's praiseworthy if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because why? Yeah, he's conscious of God. That piece that I didn't understand now all of a sudden will make sense here in just a second. Conscious of God, C-O-G. It's like a cog in the, in the, in the whole works. It's like clicks in, it's like, okay, now we get it. Jesus has shown us what not to do. He's given us the example what not to do. Don't retaliate, don't, don't cause threats. Then he shows us what to do. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Doing this because we're conscious of God is not like being afraid that God's watching, so we better do this right or he's gonna punish us. That's not what being conscious of God is. Being conscious of God is entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, knowing that there is one who sees what's going on, who knows what's going on, who cares about what's going on, who can and will do the right thing in this situation. And Jesus in that moment could have taken things into his own hands. But he decides, I'll let God be God. I'll let God do his work. I'll let him because he knows and, and, and I can trust that he wants the best for me and that he will take care of this situation. David writes in Psalm 31 about life being difficult, hardships, injustice, people saying things, it's just all this shame. And then he writes this, but I trust in you, conscious of God. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times, they're in your hands. God, my good times, they're in your hands. My bad times, they're in your hands. My joyful times are in your hands. My sorrowful times are in your hands. My victorious days are in your hands. My days of feeling so defeated are in your hands. When everything is right in my world, it's in your hands. When there's injustice and all is wrong in my world, it's in your hands. My times, I trust you, you're my God. My times are in your hand. And he says, so, would you deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue, who pursue me? Paul writes to the believers in Rome, in the book of Romans. It could have been the book of Neuropolis, but it's not. But he writes to them in Romans chapter 12, these very difficult words for us on the human side. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You're not responsible for that other person, but you are responsible for yourself. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I will entrust my life into the one who judges justly. I will let you be God. How many times do we say, God, I'll take this one off your plate for you. Let me handle this one. I got this one covered. Or we say, it's not fair, God. They need to pay, they did some things wrong. You're absolutely right. They do need to pay. They did some things wrong. But before you get overly zealous, let's go back to this example of Christ in 1 Peter where it says, he himself bore our sins, my sins, in his body on the tree. What if on the cross Jesus would have said, 
hey, it's not fair. Bob deserves to pay for his own sins. I do. They need to, they need to suffer, God. It's not fair. This is injustice that I would have. You remember Jesus was crucified, not just by Roman guards, not just by Jewish leaders, by the sin of Bob Marvel. And he suffered this injustice. And it goes on and says, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. <laughs> take, take that phrase, pray and live that phrase. Tell me that doesn't transform your life. God, help me today to die to sin and to live for righteousness. Jesus went to the cross not just to forgive my sins, but so that I can be transformed and die to sin and live a different way. That's what we talked about last week. To be holy because he who called us is holy. And it says, by his wounds, he goes back to Isaiah again, Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned. You'd wandered off, you'd gone your own way. It's the kindness of God that causes us to repentance. It's because of his love and his grace that he takes on the injustice so that we might have this, that we would return. And then he uses these two titles that maybe we don't use a whole lot. You've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And I wonder as Peter is writing this letter, he knows what they're going through. He knows the slanderous rumors that have been spoken against them. He knows the persecution that they have faced and they will face. He knows the way that they are cruelly treated by their owners as slaves. And he says, remember, you have a shepherd. And maybe he thinks back to that Psalm 23 passage that's so familiar. That you've returned to the one who is the Lord and you have nothing to want or need. He is your shepherd. I mean, he brings you to still waters and green pastures. He protects you with his rod and staff. He sets up a table in the presence of your enemies, your persecutors. All of these things, he causes you to walk in his paths of righteousness. And his goodness and mercy will follow you every day of your life. And if you happen to die, oh man, you get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's your shepherd and the overseer of your soul. The one who guides you, the one who guards you, the one who protects you. I think it was Charles Stanley who said this, that God takes full responsibility for the life that is fully committed to him. God says, I'll take care of this. I will be the overseer of your soul. Let me, let me handle this. I will take the responsibility for your soul. You begin to understand in the midst of all of your suffering, in the midst of all the injustice, that your shepherd and your overseer has your daily provision, everything you want, everything you need, everything that is required of you, your shepherd and your overseer is there. Now I'll close with a couple of verses very familiar to many of you. In the book of Lamentations, which its title speaks for itself, suffering, hardship, injustice, persecution. Jeremiah is writing about how difficult this is and his life was filled with a lot of unjust suffering. And in Lamentations chapter three, he writes, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Take note of this. 
He doesn't say, oh, everything's wonderful, everything's fine, there's no problems. He's not Pollyanna saying, you know, yeah, it's all good. He says, it's not all good. Life is hard. I mean, there's been injustice that I've suffered and, and I remember it really well and, and there's, there's this bitterness that I'm fighting inside of me and I'm downcast within my soul. And then he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. In the reality of my circumstances, there's something that I do here that brings me hope. There's something that I call to mind. And what is it that he, that in the midst of his hardship and his bitterness and the scald of his soul, what is it that's, that brings him hope? Inspirational bumper stickers? No, I don't think that's what it is. The hope playlist on his Spotify? That's it, it's lyrics, dude. The sun will come out tomorrow. Gives me hope. It's gonna be great. Tomorrow's gonna be a better day. I don't think that's it. If you hold on for one more day, things will go your way. Hold on for one more day. I don't think that's it. The bevy of Kelly Clarkson songs. No, no, he says, this is what I call to mind. It's not a bunch of lyrics. It's not about my circumstances changing. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My circumstances may never change, but neither will my hope. Every single morning, I have a living hope. Every single morning, my hope bucket is filled with overflowing hope, not because my circumstances may ever change, but because Jesus is alive and he is faithful and he is compassionate and he is the shepherd of my soul and he is the overseer of my soul and he is the one who will give me everything I need. I can have hope even in and especially in injustice. And Paul writes in Romans when he says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the hope that we've been called to. That's the living hope, the new birth into the living hope that we have the hope that overflows even in and especially in injustice. That maybe this week, maybe every morning when you wake up, you just remind yourself before you start your day, I have a good shepherd and I have the overseer of my hope and he is alive and he is my living hope and because of that, no matter what circumstances I face, I have hope that overflows in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the hope we've been called to. And that's the hope that we live in.